What was it like to transition from a divorce attorney to the president and CEO of Solar Energy Industries Association, all while raising three young children? In today's Greenlight episode, I will speak with Abby Hopper about this. Mom guilt, managing consistently being the only woman in the room, and the value of personal champions. We'll also speak about the exciting new way SIA is further developing both its internal and external diversity, inclusion, and equity initiatives. Thanks for tuning into the green light. Now let's dive in. So I'm Catherine McLean, founder and CEO of Dylan Green, and today I have with me Abby Hopper. Abby is the CEO of SIA. Thanks for joining me today, Abby. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. So I want to talk a bit about the first time that we met. It was, I believe, last summer when life was somewhat normal, and <laughs> You were running a lunch and learn at SIA about your diversity challenge at the time. And it really stuck with me because you had your son with you. And I also have a son. And I thought you were so calm, cool, and collected. Your son was so well behaved. So I want to talk a little bit about being a mom during the pandemic and how you found it. Yeah, it's been hard. It's been really hard. I have three kids. So the, the one you met is my youngest. They're all learning from home. They're all struggling in their own ways. We've taken all the fun parts of school away and only left the boring part for them. Yeah. Um, my daughters are, you know, my, I have a senior in high school, so she's missing all of these rituals that happen her senior year. So that's been a loss for her. And it's been really challenging. They all have their own emotional needs and they're all, you know, reacting differently. And I know your little guy is little, little. Mine are old enough that there's also a ton of anxiety around who they spend time with, who I spend time with, how we sort of exponentially are increasing everyone's um, risk. <laughs> and yeah. that, that's been, we've had more family fights about that than anything else. I guess it makes sense, but I wasn't really anticipating that. All three of my children have very different comfort levels with sort of exposure and being out in the world. And so having to manage to like the one who's the most conservative and the most anxious about it and telling the others they can't do things has been really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I find as well, just like with your parents and friends, like they all have different risk levels. So it's yeah. been really challenging to sort of navigate because you don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, but then you also want to have some sort of pod of communication. Right. right, some other adult to talk to in your day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you've been a real trailblazer for women in clean energy. And you've mentioned in some of the interviews you've given that you've been the only quite some time. And I definitely can identify with being the only. Uh, how have you overcome being the only? Yeah, I have been the only uh, many, many, many times. It took me a long time to really feel comfortable. And I don't always feel comfortable being the only. So earlier on in my career, when I was the only woman in the room, and you know, to be clear, I'm a, I'm a white woman, I'm super privileged, I'm physically able to do whatever I want. And so I try to be very aware of my own privilege. And, and so being the only woman, and still coming from a place of lots and lots of privilege to, to be very open about that. But I had to learn how to kind of take up my place at the table, literally, like, sit at the table, not on the back row, speak up if I had something to say. For a long time, people spoke over me because I, I don't need to talk all the time. And if someone talks over me, then I'm usually just going to stop talking. <laughs> but when I'm leading things, I have to speak. And so my friend, do you know my friend Kelly Steve Bachman, who's the head of the Energy Storage Association? She's one of yeah, my best friends. 
she's awesome. And she's one of my best friends. And we were in a meeting once and I was talking about something and this gentleman started to talk over me and I put my hand up and I was like, stop, I'm still talking. And then I just, that I was like so upset that I couldn't remember what I was wanted to say, but I was like, I just have to keep talking because I've now like made this whole big scene. <laughs> it was definitely process, right? Like I didn't just wake up one day and was like, oh, I'm totally comfortable in this room being the only woman. I had a lot of really uncomfortable moments and things when I would leave a room and think, oh, I didn't do that right. Or I should have spoken up more. Or, I shouldn't have let someone take my idea. There was tons and tons of self-doubt. Reminds me of Kamala Harris during the debate. I'm speaking <laughs> right? Every woman was like, oh, yeah, I know that. I've, that's happened to me 8,000 yeah. million times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I want to talk about this, you transitioning into the energy industry, because I know you're not, you know, your background is not in energy mm-hmm. or I believe a divorce attorney. One of the areas I feel really passionate about is we can achieve diversity by bringing people from other industries into our industry to help with this clean energy transition. So yeah. tell me about your clean energy transition. Well, I think it's an interesting story, but I don't know if anyone else will. <laughs> I was at a law firm. I was a divorce litigator, you know, billing 2,400 hours a year, like super, super, super busy. And divorce law, people need you right then. People would call and say, my husband or my ex is taking my children from my house right now. What do I do? Like, I always call it like real time law, right? Like people need you right this minute. They don't need you to solve their problem next week. And so that was demanded. Like you can imagine visitation and Christmas is a very busy time for divorce lawyers. So I spent many a Christmas morning fielding calls from clients and things. So I say that because I was on maternity leave. I had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a brand new baby, and I couldn't figure out how I was going to do this. Like, how am I going to be a lawyer in private practice with three children under the age of five? And my husband at the time was also a litigator, and we were just like a hot mess of crazy. And so I was actually at the Court of Special Appeals in Maryland arguing a case like two months after having given birth. And um, I saw a friend who I knew from my other law firm. And I was, you know, I was just telling him like, Doug, I don't know what in the world am I going to do? How am I going to do this? My firm is not really that interested in working part time. And I don't even know if it would work. And so about two weeks later, he called and said, do you want to come work for me? Like you can come and work for me. And I know you have three little kids and it'll be fine. And We'll do great work. And that's when I went to be the deputy general counsel at the Maryland Public Service Commission. So that was my transition into energy, right? Like, it, so it wasn't all clean. It was a lot of utility regulation kind of work. Um, but that's when I made the shift from being a lawyer in private practice doing nothing related to energy, but to, to this. And it was 100% about having more time with my kids. 100%. I thought I wanted to be a partner at a law firm. I gave that dream up. So yeah, I was like, wow, I'm just going to take a huge career hit here, but this is what I'm going to do for my kiddos. And I, like, the irony is it's led me on this path that's been so much more interesting and rewarding and taking me to levels of leadership I would never have had the opportunity to have if I was simply a lawyer at a law firm. And so that's kind of my transition. I'm sharing that because the decisions I made to put my family first actually ended up benefiting me an incredible amount. But there was a period of a year or two where I like mourned my career because I thought I was done. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I just so can relate to that on so many levels because I think that you do have to be kind of open-minded when it comes to life in general because you, yeah. know, you have all these amazing plans, but you know life gets in the way of these plans, right? Kids must be really proud of you, though. I mean, certainly they recognize the impact that you're having, have a more clean environment, surely. You know, kids are funny. They want their mom to be home. They want their mom to remember to buy milk so they have cereal in the morning. They want their mom to, like, be able to go on their field trips. And I couldn't do a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, mom guilt is real. (laughs) It's real no matter what. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about Sia, both externally and internally. Um, So externally, you know, diversity has been one of your primary focuses not only at SIA, but throughout your career. So that was something I was really impressed with as well. It's not been like a reaction to what's happened this year. It's been doing this work for a while. How has the team further developed and expanded upon what SIA was doing? What are some DIJ successes that you've had? I think we've had a lot of success. One thing I feel really proud of is that sort of focus on diversity and a focus on equity I think, and you should ask all of my colleagues, but I think is really inherent in almost everything we do. It is a part of our culture. I think most people, hopefully everyone who have the opportunity to work with, feels like they can bring all of themselves to work. I've had that feedback from some of my colleagues, and that makes me feel really good. And we did do a cultural audit, you know, almost two years ago, I think. And, you know, there were a million different questions, but the one that felt really good to me was that people felt welcome. They felt included and they felt valued in our workplace. So that was great. And we've done that through lots of programming, like really challenging ourselves. We have outside folks come in and work with us. Myself and three of my colleagues did a two and a half day training around sort of the inherent racism in our structures and our governments and our institutions. That was really impactful just on a personal level. And I've been really intentional in my hiring. We're far from perfect, right? Like far from perfect, but we are assembling a pretty diverse group of colleagues internally at SIA, and I feel good about that. But so much of this work, I don't know that when I started, I started, not not at SIA, but sort of started this kind of work around diversity. It was more because I just needed it, right? Like I was not trying to save the world. I was trying to save myself, right? Like I needed other women and, and it was focused mainly on women that I could talk to, right? Like how do you do this with little kids? And what do you say when you have to take your kid to the pediatrician and you're, I was at a law firm and your partner is pissed off at you. Like how do you navigate bringing cupcakes when you're supposed to be in a hearing? Like how do I do all of this? And that was for me the foundation of why this matters. I do sort of joke sometimes, I'm like, every young woman lawyer in, when I was back practicing law, I was the one they came to to be like, how do you do this? And I was like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know. We're just, we are a hot mess barely hanging on. I totally get it. Yeah, I get it. I have crazy story. I have this one story when I worked for the governor of Maryland and I was testifying. I had to testify in front of the state legislator, but the Senate Finance Committee about a really important bill. And I was in the hearing room and my phone rings, of course, and it's the school nurse. And one of my kids is thrown up and I had to go, this is gross, but I had to go get her. And I was like, oh, oh no. Like I'm supposed to testify in within the hour and like I'm the one 
So I, luckily I didn't live that far away. So I ran to the school, picked my daughter up, ran back to the Senate finance room, put her in a chair in the back of the finance room next to the trash can and told her to bark from the trash can if she needed to. And then I went to the table and I testified. And I was like, what, what pure hell am I living in right now? But that was my life for like a very long time. <laughs> struggle is real. So many moms are going to be able to identify with this. Not the testifying piece, but <laughs> the nature of the story. <laughs> yes, the nature of the story. Child, I will attend to you in a moment. I need to deal with this professional thing yeah. in my life first. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit, though, about some of the things you guys are doing externally, because I know you're doing quite a bit of people like Gilbert Campbell, like around the diversity guide, yeah. You've done a lot with the NAACP. So tell me, tell me about that. Yeah, it's really good work. One of the things I have spent some time thinking about is kind of what is our role in this, right? We are a trade association, we represent businesses. How can I help lead this effort, but also figure out sort of the appropriate steps to take? Because my, you know, my members, huge variety of political views and sort of beliefs around all of this stuff. And so we have really focused on things we can do to help companies. And so for example, working with Gilbert around a supplier diversity database, right? I, I don't know about you, but my phone started ringing off the hook in mid-June. Like, hi, I want to hire a Black-owned company or a woman-owned company to do X. And I had no resource. Like, I know people, but that hardly seemed like a sufficient answer. And so building that kind of resource for our industry, for the clean energy industry, will be incredibly impactful, right, to, to companies that are looking to intentionally spend their dollars with Black and Brown-owned businesses and women-owned businesses and helpful to those businesses, clearly. So that's one effort. Another is really around board diversification. So both internally to my board, I mean, if you went on my website and saw who's on my board, they're awesome, brilliant, smart people, not particularly diverse, mostly men and all with one exception white. And so how do we sort of create the next generation of leaders that are more diverse and are ready and able to sort of step into that leadership role? What sort of lessons and resources can we offer our companies as they think about their own boards and how they recruit more diverse candidates for their own boards? So that's been really interesting, having conversations with sort of um, other groups that really focus on sort of people earlier in their career and what kind of partnerships can we create to bring these ideas together. So that's fun. A lot of companies want to do something and don't know what to do. Sort of this paralysis because they don't want to do the wrong thing and they don't want to do anything that might be offensive. So they sometimes don't do anything. And so we are creating kind of best practices and, and, and a certification process to say, if you want to make changes or you want to sort of embrace diversity and inclusion in your company, here are the steps that you should take. So it's expansion of that best practices around hiring and like, okay, here's some concrete steps. I think that's exciting because change happens when these things stop being a box or a day and they are just part of the culture. And so that feels good. And then last but not least is our policy work, right? Like how do we live these values in our policy work? I could lobby for extension of the investment tax credit all day long. And sometimes it feels like that's what I do. But what are the other policies we should be lobbying for, right? How do we use our resource and our impact to help communities that have been forgotten or communities that have experienced sort of the devastating impact of fossil fuel generation. And so that's a really interesting conversation because again, it's sort of the heart of what we do as a business is lobby. 
and for policy outcomes. And so being really thoughtful about how we incorporate those values into our lobbying work is kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think there's a perception like from other industries that because we're clean energy that we must have this rainbow coalition, <laughs> right? Because we're trying right. to do a good work. When I think that we have to include diversity in that work, not just like you were saying within hiring, but also in policy things like environmental, social justice and yeah. communities. And you guys have really led the way on that. So thank you for that. Yeah, I would say one other thing, and I just want to mention it because it feels really important to me. Back in the before times when we used to see each other in person, one of the things that was really important to me was just creating space for people at our events. And so the last SPI we had, we had a reception for for Blacks in Energy, right? And it was a convening opportunity. It was amazing. And we had one for the LGBTQ community. And we like, I always host a women's one at my house in Utah, but it's not really my house. It's the house I rented for the week. <laughs> but, um, but it just said for me personally, knowing that there's going to be a place where I will be welcomed and accepted and feel comfortable and connect with other people that want to feel welcome and accepted and comfortable. Yeah. It's a lot. It means a lot. Those events that we host are pretty homogenous, right? There's mostly white guys. And I, I love me some really great white guys, but um, there there's a lot of them. And sometimes it takes my breath away. And I just, so being very intentional about creating those safe spaces is important to me. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> my last question for you, we have to talk politics just a tiny bit. So the 100-day plan See as top priorities re-leading the economic recovery with clean energy, particularly now that Biden has won. Uh, I know you have something called six for 46. Tell me all about it. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. I, I could talk about this all day. So we do. We have a really clear plan for what we think the new administration and the new Congress should do to to accelerate the deployment of clean energy, right? I think you and I both agree, and I think most of America agrees that this transition is happening to clean energy and that it's important that it happens, but we are particularly interested in accelerating it, right? Like what can we do to make it happen faster? And so we have identified a bunch of stuff. So the key areas are around climate and tax policy, like providing certainty for businesses. It's around the infrastructure and the people that build that infrastructure. So that's where it's about the workforce training, then the equity pieces, but also the infrastructure itself. So transmission and those kinds of things. But then the last is really important is the competition, right? So making sure that homeowners have the choice of where their energy comes from, that corporates have the choice and, and that utilities have the choice. And so there's a, a lot of work that happens at FERC and at PURPA, and it's sometimes not the, one, the work that gets headlines, right? Because it's sort of the daily grind, but it really matters to companies. And so we've been talking with um, the Biden transition team about um, our vision, and they have been very uh, welcoming of that engagement. It's, that's been really, really fun. But we did, so we, we distilled that down into the six for 46. Like, what do we need him to do on day one, right? Like, other than get this pandemic under control, which I, I trust him to do. But we identified a couple of really clear things he could do right away that don't require congressional approval, but that will be impactful. So those are things like get rid of the tariffs, get rid of those 201 tariffs, appoint a climate czar who really has equity at his or her 
core, appoint the right people at FERC, appoint the right people at Interior, and bring bold litigation. <laughs> We're talking too much about being attorneys. Being bold legislation to Congress, both around clean energy and domestic manufacturing. And then the, the other piece that's important that he could do right away is you know, he's got to have a budget. Our president-elect, when he becomes our president, will have a budget very quickly. And we've been doing a lot of work around this thing called Solar App, which is really for the distributed community that will bring down the soft cost significantly. And, and he could have put money in the DOE budget to facilitate the deployment of that tool. We're already partnered with DOE on it. And so it would all about the rate of adoption, right? Like right. faster, faster, faster. Our planet is, you know, climate change is not stopping. So we need to keep moving quickly. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I appreciate all the hard work that you're doing for our industry. Oh, it was such a pleasure. I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Greenlight Podcast. Are you looking for your next role in climate tech? Join the latest growing network of clean tech professionals and be the first to know about what industry-leading clean tech companies First, post new job openings from development to finance to marketing by checking out our website, dylan-green.com slash latest-jobs. Dylan Green is transforming business through talent. You can also find us on YouTube where we engage with today's top clean energy leaders.